Our sermon this morning is from uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. We finished the book of Genesis last week and uh, are jumping back into the gospel of Luke this week. We'll be here for maybe a month or two. Um, We'll see. We've been going through the book of Luke pretty steadily since, really since 2016. It was one of the first books that I started, Um, but we've just been kind of, you know, spending, just going off and on through it. And so we've seen, so far, we've seen some some key uh, themes. We've seen the structure of the book of Luke uh, kind of in in front of us. And so Luke chapters 1 through 4 is just kind of introductory. It's Jesus' birth. It's his childhood prophecies surrounding his birth. It's his preparation for for ministry. So, um, you know, he temptation in the wilderness and uh, his baptism and things like that. That's Luke 1 through 4, his introduction. Luke 4 through 9 uh, is Jesus's ministry in and around Galilee. Uh, so he calls his disciples. He kind of, they, they begin traveling together, preaching and teaching and healing, but specifically in the northern, in the region of northern Israel near uh, the Sea of, of Galilee. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, they set out. They kind of set out on this journey from uh, Galilee so and, and headed toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is southern Israel. It's more of the cultural uh, epicenter of the nation. Um, Galilee, up in northern Israel, was kind of rural. It's kind of the, the outskirts, as it were. And so Jesus uh, heads from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, and, and then they continue to just preach and teach uh, the, the entire way. That section, uh, Luke 9 to 19, which is what we're in now. Uh, but that section is where we see the lion's share of Jesus' parables. So over the last few years, we've seen the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the rich fool, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, the great banquet, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the dishonest manager, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus parable of the persistent widow, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. These are all kind of Lucan parables that we see in that section on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, in Luke chapter 19, they arrive in Jerusalem. And so Jesus kind of arrives there and begins doing his, his ministry, uh, but not for long because in uh, Luke 22, Jesus is arrested. He's abandoned by his friends, denied by Peter. He's put on trial. Luke 23, uh, there's his trial in front of Pilate and Herod. Uh, he's crucified, buried. Luke chapter 24, Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears to his disciples, encourages them, and then ascends back to, to heaven. So that's kind of the the overarching kind of storyline of the Gospel of Luke. Introduction, Galilean ministry, uh, journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, uh, ministry in Jerusalem, death, resurrection, ascension. So uh, today we're going to look at, oh, and and so we're going to, yeah, spend a few weeks in um, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to try to, my my hope is to kind of line things up and structure them so that we land on the resurrection passage in Easter of 2022. Uh, and then we'll just kind of keep breezing through the, the rest of that and finish the Gospel of Luke in its entirety, summer of 2022. So that's the plan. And we're going to try to work through, um, work, work through it in this, this year so that we kind of uh, line that up accordingly. But uh, today, short little passage. Last week, Jesse had like 60 slides to go through because we were going through like 14 chapters of big Old Testament narrative. This week, he's just got one. So he's just going to click it and then now he's done for the whole, for the whole PowerPoint for the whole morning. So a short little passage, um, 
that we're going to read and we're just going to consider. We're going to consider what this passage tells us about the Bible, what it tells us about the Old Testament, what it tells us about the person and work of Jesus, what it tells us about the atonement, what it tells us about how we come to Christ and, and enjoy new life and, and uh, relationship with Christ through, um, through what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to read, um, read it in its entirety and then we're going to, um, yeah, we're going to just kind of work our way work our way through it. Now, what's interesting is that this passage, uh, Luke 18 has an interesting kind of thread running through it. So homework this week, just read through Luke 18 and kind of read, uh, you know, one, each kind of pericope, each section after the other, um, and, and kind of look at the recurring line that goes through it. Because what you'll see is that Luke 18 is, uh, it's kind of setting up or it's kind of emphasizing this upside down nature of the kingdom of God, right? So, so you're going to see uh, one after the other in each of these kind of passages, each of these stories, each of these episodes that the, the, the passages are championing, they're celebrating, they're affirming, they're lifting up people that society was largely dismissive of. So women, children, uh, widows, sinners, tax collectors, these are the people that one after the other without fail are celebrated in Luke 18. And the people that, uh, that society would kind of habitually fawn over and celebrate and kind of give deference to are the very people that uh, Luke 18 consistently rebukes and, and warns. So Pharisees, rulers, rich people, kings, judges, all of the, the power brokers of the day. So that's kind of the thread that's going through Luke 18 up until this passage right here. And so this passage tends to, uh, it kind of sits on, it's kind of riding that wave of kind of celebrating those who have been forgotten and disenfranchised and those who are, are despised by the world and rebuking and confronting those who are celebrated by the world. It rides on that wave and it's kind of Jesus, uh, you know, you know he's, he's talking to his people and, and they have the impression that Jesus either is or wants to be or is aspiring to be, uh, you know, one of that, like the, the culture makers, right? Kings, politicians, leaders, rulers, rich people. And he's going to make it very clear that, that he is going to Jerusalem not to overthrow the, the establishment there, not to become king himself, but he's going to Jerusalem uh, to die at the hands of the very people that, uh, that, they're, that they're talking about. So I'll read these uh, four verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll work through it. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they, the twelve, they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown to us, uh, most notably through uh, giving us your word, right? Through, through speaking to us and giving us the privilege of uh, owning and possessing a Bible where we can hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love your word. We pray that you would help us to study your word, submit to your word, uh, be changed and sanctified by your word. 
And we ask you to do that this morning. It's in, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, so we'll start with a question, right? Qu- question that we want to like, kind of let inform how we look at this passage and what it, what it means to us, which is, uh, what is what is the Bible all about? Someone were to ask you, you're a Christian, right? I see it on your Facebook. I see, you know, I can, you know, I, I know you're a Christian. So why don't, tell me what the Bible is, right? And, and like, I don't have a lot of time. So like, you know, planes leaving, zone four, right? Where we like, the, they're about to close the, the gate. I gotta, I gotta go. So in, a, in one sentence, I want you to tell me what the Bible is all about. Now I looked it up this week. I Googled it. I Googled what's the Bible all about. And, uh, so a few, a few, you know, sources here. One, uh, the Bible is the holy scripture of the Christian religion purporting to tell the history of the earth from its earliest creation to the spread of Christianity in the first century AD. That's what, that's what one, you know, one source says the Bible is all about. Another one, uh, the Bible is a collection of religious texts or scriptures that appear to form, uh, an anthology, a collection of theologically focused historical accounts hymns, prayers, proverbs, parables, didactic letters, poetry, prophecies that are all linked together by the belief that they are collectively revelations of God. Sounds, sounds fair too. I don't know that I have a ton of, you know, pushback about either of those, those definitions. I've heard a few, you know, over the course of my life, right? I've heard people say that uh, the Bible is God's love letter to his people, right? So, you're in a long-distance relationship. You have to communicate to keep it alive. You write letters to one another. God's in he- We're in a long-distance relationship with God, right? He's in heaven. We're on earth. That's far away. Uh, so this is God's love letter that he writes to us so that we can remain in communication with him. I've heard other people say the Bible is God's instruction manual like for, for life, right? You buy a, buy a chair from Ikea, and you have to decipher the you know, instruction manual that's printed in German or something to build it by a DVD player, you, have, you know, to figure out how to use it, you have to read the instructions. So, so we've been, we've been kind of put into this life. God's given us an instruction manual to figure out how to live and navigate through life in this world. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm, I suppose there's some element of truth to all of those. There's, there's an element of truth to, to the ones we read online, to those like, you know, little cliches that I've heard over the course of my life. But if I had to give you a quick answer to the question, what is the Bible all about? Based on this text and others, I'd say that the Bible is about Jesus. The Bible, uh, at its core, right, is, is ultimately a story. It's a collection of stories. It's a collection of books, but they are all kind of bound together. They're, they're kind of attached together in this overarching story, this narrative about Jesus. And you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense because uh, most of the Bible was written before Jesus was ever born, right? So I get that like the New Testament, the Gospels, stories about Jesus, birth, ministry, death, resurrection, letters in the New Testament explain about Jesus, kind of break down uh, who Jesus is and what he, what he did. But what about the Old Testament, right? His name's not mentioned. Um, you know, how can, how can the entire Bible be about Jesus if 39 out of the 66 books don't mention his name and were written before he was ever born? So that's what we want to unpack. We want to unpack how this text um, you know, kind of speaks to that, speaks to that question. Now, uh, before we do, um, we'll just kind of, yeah, just some pre- preliminary information. So, uh, and taking the 12, uh, he, he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem so that everything that's written about the son of man and the prophets will be accomplished. He proceeds to, um, if you look at your Bible, uh, you'll see, 
um, like a little heading that says Jesus foretells his death for a third time or Jesus predicts his death for a third time. So uh, it kind of raises the question, what are the first two times? As we're reading through the Gospel of Luke, uh, they, they seem to both be in Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, verse 22, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he'll be killed, and on the third day he will be raised. Luke 9, 44, he says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. First time, second time, and then this time here in Luke chapter 18 is the... The third time, right? They're heading to Jerusalem. They're, they're getting close now, right? Next chapter is going to be when they, when they arrive. And Jesus is kind of, he's already been planting the seeds and now he's reiterating and he's kind of um, trying to continually uh, set and reset and align and realign their expectations, right? I'm not going to be installed as a king, at least not yet. You know, in in the near term, when we arrive in Jerusalem, I'm going to be convicted as a criminal. I need you to know that. I need you to emotionally prepare for that. Uh, That's where this is is headed. So he's been teaching publicly, and and it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them. So Jesus kind of calls them over to the side, twelve disciples and Jesus, and he's going to explain uh, this to them, which happens repeatedly uh, in the Gospels. Jesus is... His ministry uh, is, there's a pronounced public ministry to Jesus where he's teaching to crowds, but there's also a very pronounced private ministry, personal ministry to Jesus, where he pulls his disciples to the side and, uh, and encourages them, right? He's not in the spotlight. He's not, um, you know, trying to become famous. He's not trying to, you know, uh, accomplish some big, you know, cultural movement or goal. He's just discipling and mentoring people and, and friends. Our, you know, our, our culture, uh, really likes, uh, the, the idea of, of, of public ministry, right? Uh, people want to be famous. They want to, you know, they want to be, to be noticed. They want to be in the spotlight. A lot of Jesus's life and ministry is him retreating back away from the spotlight that's chasing him and instead kind of gathering his friends and people close to him in private, ministering to them, encouraging them. I would argue that uh, Jesus is, that that's not merely descriptive on the part of what Jesus did, but it's prescriptive. Something that we should seek to emulate is, is investing in personal relationships as opposed to, you know, publicly trying to, you know, build uh, our brand or whatever, whatever it is. If you, uh, so I, I did some math this week. Uh, if, if you took the most famous person in the world and said, uh, I want you to leverage your fame, your notoriety, your brand. I want you to, to leverage your ability to reach people for the sake of trying to accomplish the great commission. And you, you know, you gave them a budget, you gave them a private plane, you know, an advanced team that would go from city to city. And just every night you would just kind of line up, uh, you know, events where that person could speak to 10,000 people, stadium, arena, whatever it is, 10,000 people in the audience. You can tell them about Jesus. You can leave, hop on the plane, go to the next uh, event and just night after night, city after city, tell people about Jesus, 10,000 people at a time. Assuming that were possible, how long do you think it would take for that person to tell everyone in the world about Jesus? If you have a calculator, you can figure it out. But if not, just, you know, throw out a guess. 
10,000 people at a pop, one person, uh, how long would it take for that person to, to tell everyone in the world about Jesus? You have to divide 8 million, wait, 8 billion, that's how many people are in the world, by 10,000 people per night. And then you divide that by 365 nights, because that's how many nights there are in a year. You get, you, you land at about 2,000, over 2,000 years. So it's not possible, because that guy's not going to live for 2,000 years. And by the time he gets to the 2,000th year, everyone's going to be, de- like, it'll be all, it'll be 8 billion new people. Because everyone will have died, and there will be, so it'll, it's just forever and ever, it's going to keep, keep going, he'll never, never make it. So, uh, accomplishing the Great Commission through strictly public ministry, right? Big events, big crowds, spotlight, I'm going to tell as many people as I can about Jesus, is just mathematically not possible. You'll burn out, flame out, and tank. Take that same guy, though, and say, I don't want you to, you know... I don't want you to, to you know, I'm not going to book any venues. There's not going to be any uh, formal spotlight. But what I want you to do is take one person for the next 12 months, next year, tell them about Christ, teach them the Bible, disciple them, teach them how to share their faith and disciple someone else. Which seems kind of not very impressive. It's one guy mentoring, discipling, training one guy. And a year later, you've got two guys. Well, after one year, the guy with the 10,000 has got, what, 3.6 million or so? He's got, he's got a lot of people that he's told about Christ. This guy, he's got, gone from one to two, which seems pretty uh, not impressive. But now those two people, they are each tasked with taking a year, finding someone, telling them about Christ, teaching them the Bible, and, and teaching them how to share their faith with someone else. You go from two to four. Right? You've done, the, you've done this. So, the, so then, uh, how long would it take those people? So they go from four to eight, from eight to six. To every, every year, you kind of train one person in, on what the gospel is and how to communicate it to others. How long would it take those people to accomplish the Great Commission and to see all eight billion people in the world come to know Christ? 33 years. So, so 10,000 people every night preaching to large crowds would take you thousands of years. But if you mentor one person and disciple them, and then kind of unleash them to go mentor someone else and disciple them, the, the Great Commission could be accomplished in one generation. And so Jesus knew that. He was well aware of, he was well aware of the fact that there was a public component to his ministry where he taught to crowds. People knew he was coming. They traveled through the night to see him and hear from him and be healed by him and kind of be able to tell their friends that they had, you know, rubbed shoulders with Jesus. But he also invested heavily in personal ministry with friends. He encouraged them, right? Uh, I would argue that God's primary plan for how he wants the gospel to be spread and how he wants his people to grow is is uh through personal discipling relationships where believers gather together and encourage one another sing together read the bible together walk through life together and then invite their neighbors and family and friends kind of into this life with them it's not as impressive it's not as cool uh, it's not as as polished but it is how how christ intends to do ministry So he takes the 12, brings them over to the side, and he kind of gives them this little behind-the-scenes kind of insight into what is happening. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Here's why we're going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen when we get there. He will be delivered. He, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, 
mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. So, so I'm going to be handed over to uh, Roman officials, Roman guards, right? Jesus, Jesus is God. Jesus is the rightful king of God's people. And he says, I'm going to be handed over uh, to the enemies of God's people. They're just going to, you know, here, you, you deal with him. We, we want this man disposed of. We don't want to do the dirty work ourselves. We would rather you do it for us. And Jesus would be, uh, you know, mocked and, and tortured, as it were, and, and killed. I'm not going to get too into the, the graphic nature of the, the crucifixion. I did some reading on it this week, and it's, uh, it's, it's upsetting, right? The, 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 the process of the Roman crucifixion and uh, how it was accomplished and why it was accomplished, it's really, um, you know, upsetting in your, your soul, right? It, it was uh, almost a... Uh, the, the Romans had kind of uh, perfected the art of slowly and painfully ending someone's uh, life. It was gratuitous, it was sadistic, it was cruel and unusual, and it was intentionally public and, and embarrassing, Right? The whole point of crucifixion was to shame the victim, torture the victim, make an example of the victim as a warning to the public to say, don't you do what this person did uh, or, or, or you're next, as it, as it were. Um, you know, there, there, was, there was very much a, a uh, you know, kind of a, an interactive component to it. People would come by, they would watch, look jeer, laugh, scoff at the victim. Most victims would kind of in turn, uh, you know, spew vile things back at the, at the people. It was just, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, tension and antagonism going on. It would go on for hours, if not days. Specifically with Jesus's crucifixion, um, there was a lot of, um, Jesus was made sport of um, in ways that a lot of uh, crucifixion victims weren't because of these claims that he had made, saying that he was the king of the Jews, right? And so they would, you know, they took his clothes, they used him as like, a, you know, like the pot for a gambling game that they would play. They put a, a purple robe on him to kind of make fun of the fact that like no king would ever be treated like this. That's ri- ridiculous. Crown of thorns, put that on his, on his head. You know, they put a, a big heavy uh, crossbar of the cross on his back after they had uh, beaten him and kind of forced him to carry the wood of his cross up the hill to uh, the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the, the skull. So Jesus' uh, crucifixion was especially uh, painful, especially demeaning, especially insulting. It was made to be that way. Um, Roman crucifixions, uh, the cause of death would be suffocation, right? The, the physics of hanging on the cross uh, is that you, uh, it becomes difficult and then impossible to inhale. Uh, the, the, the way that your body is hanging, in, basically in order to inhale any oxygen into your, your body, you have to do a pull-up or like push up with your, with your feet and victims would do that for as long as they could, gasping for a little bit of air that they could, could get, but eventually they would, would die from, from asphyxiation. And Jesus is saying, that is how, like, that's the culmination of our journey here. That's where I'm headed. I am going to Jerusalem to be handed over to people who are going to beat, torture, and, and crucify me. It's kind of the physical, uh, the physical aspect of where Jesus is headed and where he's, he's going. 
And the spiritual aspect, like the reason why Jesus had to be crucified was so that uh, God's righteous anger and holy wrath against the sin of humanity could be satisfied once and for all. When we, we rebel against God, we incur His wrath, we provoke God to a, uh, a holy and a righteous anger, which seems foreign. Right? That, that, the concept of, of uh, anger and indignation being, being righteous and necessary is, right, is foreign. Our, our, you know, my kid is one, but he's kind of, you know, we're, we're approaching the years where we're going to have to teach Baxter and, uh, you know, how to navigate through conflict and how if you hurt someone, if you sin against them, you have to apologize. You have to repent. If someone hurts you, sins against you, you have to listen to them, make eye contact when they're apologizing, and then you have to forgive them, right? We, we love the idea that if a person is hurting or suffering, we give them relief. If a person sins against you, you forgive them. You reconcile, you repent, you move forward, right? And all of that is good and, and right. That's how the Bible calls us to understand forgiveness. That's what the, that's what the Bible calls us to in terms of uh, interacting with, with others when we are sinned against. But that's different than how God, like, the difference between how God forgives sin or how God deals with sin and how we deal with sin is that we have the luxury, uh, human beings, created beings, have the luxury of when we forgive sin, essentially what we're doing is um, taking the vengeance that, that rightly should be taken against that sin and just giving it to someone else, right? We're giving it to God. God doesn't have the luxury of, of taking sin that needs to be dealt with, punishment that needs to be meted out, and then giving it to someone else. The buck stops here, right? With, right so, so God says, all of you can forgive sin, you can allow yourself to be sinned against, and you can entrust vengeance, entrust revenge, entrust judgment, and entrust all of that to someone else, knowing that it will be taken care of perfectly and, and in a way that is holy and just and right. God doesn't have the luxury of letting someone else deal with sin for him. God is the one that has to make sure that, that sin is dealt with appropriately, that it's not ignored, that it's not allowed, that it's not celebrated. And, and as, as, uh, you know, as, as difficult as it is to wrestle with the idea of God's wrath and God's anger against sin... If we're honest with ourselves, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing, right? We love forgiveness. We love second chances. We love people to not have to, you know, pay, like to, to be punished. But deep in our soul, we want God to be holy. We need God to be, like we, we need God to be angry at sin. We need God to pour his wrath out against sin. Um, you know, if you think about the worst thing that's ever been done to you, someone hurt you, someone stole something from you, someone betrayed you, assaulted you, molested you, right? Imagine, imagine thinking about the worst thing that's ever been done to you and then having to, to live with the thought that, there was never going to be any reckoning for that, that no one was ever going to have to answer for that. Someone hurts someone that you love. Imagine how you'd feel if they never had to answer for it. 
right? If you take the, take the discomfort and the uneasy feeling uh, that you get when you consider violent crimes against defenseless people, child abuse, human trafficking, right? And then you kind of take that feeling and then ask the question, do I want to live in a world where sin is not dealt with? Do I want to live in, in the kind of world, in a world where that kind of behavior is, is allowed, it's embraced, it's tolerated, it's affirmed, it's celebrated? Or do I want to live in a world where there's a holy, righteous God who is standing sovereign over it, who's making sure that every single sin will be dealt with and paid for, people are held to account, victims get justice, all things are made right? The doctrine of the wrath of God might seem unpleasant, might seem regressive, it might seem uh, barbaric, like a doctrine that we're embarrassed about. But if, if, you, if we think deeply about it, the doctrine of the wrath of God is what helps us uh, make sense of the world, and, and uh, it's entirely necessary if we want to live in a world that's right and just and, and good. And the doctrine of the wrath of God is what is being expressed at the cross, right? When Jesus is delivered over to the Gentiles and he's mocked and treated shamefully and spit upon, flogged and, and killed, it's the doctrine of the wrath of God that is on display in that, that moment. For all of human history, humanity has lived in continual rejection of God. God invites us to live with him and enjoy his presence and we run away from him. God calls us to recognize his sovereignty and his authority and we insist on being our own god being sovereign over our own life god calls us to worship him as our greatest treasure the thing that we love more than anything else in the world and instead we worship idols and false gods possessions money relationships the idea of being perceived well by others right instinctively we worship anything and everything except god because at the end of the day, what we're ultimately worshiping is ourselves instead of God. And so the doctrine of sin tells us that we're, we've broken God's law, we've uh, broken God's heart, we've rejected him, rebelled against him, and in so doing we have incited the righteous wrath of, of God. Right? And, and the only outcome, right? God, given his holiness and, and his responsibility to, to treat sin justly and our sin and our rebellion, the only outcome is to be separated from God, to suffer punishment at his hand for an infinite amount of time. Anything less than that would be unjust. It would be, it would be evil. If God's response to sin was anything less than an infinite cosmic punishment meted out to sinners who have sinned against an infinitely holy God. So, as a result of, of the sin of humanity, God has a few choices, right? He can either, uh, you know, ignore, ignore all of that, ignore his responsibility to deal justly with sin and thereby uh, essentially become evil himself, God could consign all of humanity to hell for all of eternity where they are separated from his love and they are under his infinite punishment forever. 
Or God could become a person and God could live a perfect life, the life that He called us to live, but that we never could. The, the, the only person who did not deserve to die, who had every right to uh, escape death and walk directly into God's presence without fear of punishment, right? Jesus, uh, instead of uh, escaping death by virtue of His own perfection in this life, instead took on our punishment. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was treated shamefully. Jesus was disrespected. Jesus was uh, you know, beaten. And Jesus was murdered. Not because He was receiving the punishment for His own sin, but because He was receiving the punishment for your sin. All of God's anger, all of God's righteous wrath, that God had been storing up against humanity, against me and, and you, was all poured out on Jesus at the cross. If you read uh, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah chapter 25, you'll read about the, the cup of God's wrath that is referenced in the Old Testament to say that uh, this is what the, the nations, this is what the enemies of God are going to be forced to drink. The cup of God's wrath down to the, the dregs. And on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. The same cup that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you, Jesus drained it completely. In a matter of hours... Jesus suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. That's what he's anticipating. That's what he's thinking about in verses 32 and 33. But it's not the end of the story. right? After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. The Son of Man will Rise. So it's not just that Jesus died, it's also that Jesus gets up out of the grave, right? The death of Jesus for sin, to forgive sin, uh, to, to satisfy the wrath of God against sin is awesome and glorious and, and necessary. But if Jesus died and stayed dead, then any number of things, any number of concerning, devastating things would still be true. I'll just uh, run through a couple real quick. If Jesus died and stayed dead, we would have no way of knowing that he was who he said he was. And we'd have no way of knowing if anything that he said was true. Right? There are any number of reasons to believe anything that anyone else says. Education, uh, experience, intelligence, insight, wisdom, you know, any number of reasons to listen to what anyone else says, but I would submit that, you know, possibly number one on the list, an automatic qualifier to listen to something a person says is if they defeat death. If they are killed, everyone saw them die, but then they rise from the dead several days later, a glorified resurrection body, they interact with people for weeks, and then they, are, uh, they, they ascend to heaven in front of people's eyes. If you witness someone to do those things, then listen to them. Because what they say is likely true. If Jesus died and stayed dead, we would have no way of knowing if anything that he said was true. We would also, uh, if Jesus died and stayed dead... He would not have achieved victory over Satan and sin and, and death. Right? 
Uh, again, the, the, the death of Christ on the cross is glorious and it is awesome and it is necessary for, for, you know, for Christ to die so that God's wrath can be satisfied. But if Jesus died and then stayed dead, then essentially you have a, like a, a cosmic prisoner exchange, right? Where like, you know, you've got something I want, I've got, right, right you've got God, uh, you know, kind of at odds with, with his own justice or with, with Satan, as it were, and, and essentially, you know, th- there's just a trade, right? God's people have been ransomed into sin, and so God kind of gives Jesus so that he can get his people back, and it just, it, the game just ends in a tie, right? God won, he got his people back, Satan won, he killed a member of the triune godhead and then just that's the end of the story it just ends in a draw but the resurrection uh flips the the script it kind of turns the tables and now uh christ's atonement on the cross and his subsequent resurrection is not a a draw it's not tit for tat it's it's jesus is victorious jesus wins grace wins uh justice wins salvation wins god has established himself as the eternal champion who is victorious over satan and sin and death so if jesus uh died and stayed dead we'd have no reason to trust anything that he says he would not have emerged victorious over satan sin and death and if Jesus stayed dead, there would be no resurrection or eternal life for Jesus to invite us into. Right? If Jesus didn't get up, if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then the good news of the gospel is great news. You don't have to pay for your sin anymore. Jesus has uh, satisfied God's wrath, and now you don't have to spend eternity in hell. Full stop. That's it. That's all, like apart from the resurrection of Christ, that is the extent of the good news of the gospel. But the the good news of the gospel goes well beyond that, right? Jesus is saying, right, good news, God's wrath is satisfied, you don't have to spend eternity in hell paying for your sin, and I have gotten up out of the grave. I have defeated death. I have imputed my victory to you. I have invited you into my new life and my resurrection with me. Come with me, be with me, experience new life with God under the rule of God for all of eternity. If Jesus died and stayed dead, he can't say any of that to his people because he's dead. We'd have no way of knowing if anything he said was true. He wouldn't have achieved victory over Satan's sin and death. There'd be no resurrection or eternal life for him to invite us into. And four, uh, we would have no power over sin in this life. Romans chapter 6, um, um, you know, details a very specific link between Christ's resurrection and our power to defeat and overcome sin and live a new life in Christ here in this world. Paul says, what should we say? Are we to continue in sin? By no means. For all of us who've been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. We were buried with him. So that we might be raised from the dead, so that we might walk in newness of life. We've not only been united with Christ into his death, but we were also united with him into his resurrection. So that our old self might be crucified and done away with, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Jesus' death 
secures for us forgiveness of sin. And we need that. Jesus' resurrection secures for us power over sin. We need that. So Jesus died for our sins. He was delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And all of that is profoundly important. And if we circle back up to verse 31 for a second, all of that is what was written about the Son of Man in the prophets. Right? Which kind of refers back to the question I posed at the beginning. What is the Bible all about? Jesus is saying, I'm going to die for sin. I'm going to be resurrected in victory over sin. And that is what, uh, that's what the Old Testament was all about. The, the, the word prophets was often used euphemistically to refer to all of the Old Testament. So if you zoom out and you read the entire Old Testament and you look at it as one collective unit with one central story, you see that it's about Jesus, right? You see that uh, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Adam sins against God in the garden, obtains death and punishment for all of his offspring. Jesus is faithful to God, obedient to God in the garden, and secures life and salvation for all of his spiritual offspring. Jesus is the true and better Noah, who saves us from the judgment of God. God's wrath is falling all around us like a flood. We hide in the ark that is Christ for safety and security. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who, who left his home, ventured out into the unknown in order to create a new people of God. He's the true and better Isaac, who uh, was offered as a sacrifice by his father, Right? Abraham proved his love to God by being willing to sacrifice Isaac. God proves his love to us by actually sacrificing Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God, took the, the blow of justice that we deserve. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers only to be resurrected and to ascend to rulership and to offer himself as the bread of life for his people. He's the true and better Moses who mediates uh, between God and man, speaks the word of God to the people of God, intercedes to God on behalf of his people, establishes a new covenant that's better than the old covenant that Moses established established. Jesus is the true and better Joshua who leads God's people into the promised land of rest and salvation. He's the true and better uh, Boaz from the book of Ruth who redeems his bride and saves her from despair and death. Jesus is the true and better David, the godly, faithful shepherd king who defeats the enemies of God's people and imputes his victory to them then reigns over them in righteousness so that they can experience peace and security and prosperity. Jesus is the true and better Job, the, the truly innocent sufferer who, who intercedes for his foolish friends. He's the true and better Hosea, who's faithful to his bride even when she is unfaithful to him. The true and better Jonah, right, who was thrown into the storm of God's wrath, spent three days in the dark grave in the belly of the earth, only to rise again and go to his enemies to save them, right? The, the Psalms are about Jesus. Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed son who defeats and destro destroys the enemies of God. 
and will save those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 22, a man who's forsaken by God, despised, mocked, abused, hands and feet are pierced, suffering, dying at the hands of violent men while trusting God to save him and take care of him. Psalm 110 is about how God the Father will entrust all salvation and all judgment to His anointed Messiah, the holy priest king who sits at the right hand of the Father, destroys His enemies, and rules over His people. The prophets are about Jesus. They speak of a coming Savior who would suffer in, their, in the place of His people, defeat their enemies, inaugurate a new covenant, usher in God's glorious eternal kingdom where there will be no more sin, no more suffering. The lion will de- lay down with the lamb. The sacrificial system is about Jesus where God's wrath is satisfied by imputing sin to a substitute. The priesthood is about Jesus, a man who intercedes to God for his people. The temple is about Jesus, a place where the glory of God dwells among his people and their sin is dealt with. The Sabbath is about Jesus. Right, where we don't have to just we, we can put down we can we can dispense with the continual striving to earn God's favor and we can rest in the Sabbath of Christ. The entire Old Testament, all that the prophets wrote, was ultimately about the Son of Man. It was about the person and work of Jesus. His death, his resurrection to save those who turn from their sin and trust in him. And finally, the disciples hear this, right? They hear that Jesus is going to die. They hear that he's going to be raised from the dead. They hear that this is what the Old Testament anticipated and spoke about, but they understood none of it because it was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Right? Jesus isn't speaking in code. He's not, uh, you know, it's not speaking in riddles. He's very explicit, very clear. And yet, um, what's also clear is that the, the human heart in its natural state of rebellion against God and, and having been darkened by the effects of sin uh, is, is not impressed with the glory of Christ. It would prefer its own glory, right? It's not naturally inclined to think that it needs a Savior, and therefore it's not naturally inclined to recognize a Savior when it is presented to it. The natural tendency of the human heart is to say, I'm awesome just like I am. God needs me more than I need God. If I listen to myself and follow my heart, if I'm true to myself, I will be okay. I, 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 me, me, me. And the only way to break that cycle of self-ism and self-centeredness and being self-focused is... For the Holy Spirit to sovereignly intervene in our lives, to change us, to give us uh, a new birth, a new life, a, a regeneration. For the Holy Spirit to take our heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, and to give us the gift of repentance and faith. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we're destined to continue stumbling around like blind men in a dark room. We can't understand the gospel. We won't grasp the gospel because it's hidden from us because of our fallen nature. So, like in view of that, in view of God's sovereignty over all things, particularly our salvation and the salvation of those around us, 
then, then the, the response is to, as you look at your life, as you uh, deal with sin in your life, as you seek to grow and thrive as a Christian, pray for God's sovereign grace. Pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your heart. Pray that God would keep you and help you and cause you to persevere. As you minister to your friends and family, Pray for God's sovereign grace. Pray that the Holy Spirit would would work in their lives and work in their hearts. Pray that that the Holy Spirit would draw them to faith in Christ and help them to see the glory of Christ and turn to Him. If you're not a believer, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Jesus stands ready to save you, inviting you to Himself. The Holy Spirit is inviting you to come to Him. All you have to do is accept the free grace that that God offers. You don't have to wait for anything magical to, to be done to you or to happen in your life. You simply have to see Christ, and then you have to respond to the invitation of the Holy Spirit to trust in Christ, receive His grace, and walk in relationship with him. The, the Bible is all about Jesus. It's about his death and his resurrection and how we can be saved if we come to him through repentance and faith. And our calling this morning is to recognize that and then to respond to Christ with repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... Uh, thank you for the person and work of Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that Jesus came, lived for us, died for us, was raised from the dead, that our sins can be forgiven so that we can enjoy eternal life with you. We thank you for giving us the Bible so that we can read and see Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who softens our hearts and regenerates us and gives us new birth and new life. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to uh, remember the good news of the gospel and to live in light of it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.